Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Today we speak to actor and activist John Cusack. I like disruptive enterprises, right? Colonizing the fine traditions of musicians and writers, actors, athletes, you know, who refuse to buy the bull. The real meaning of the flag is that we have the ability to do just what he did. Independent people and people who challenge uh, things on principle are a pain in the ass. You know him from a remarkable range of classic films, sincerely some of my favorites, from Say Anything to Gross Point Blank to what for my money is the greatest sports film of all time, Eight Men Out. Today, we'll speak to John Cusack, certainly about his beloved Chicago Cubs, but also his remarkable new book, Things That Can and Cannot Be Said, Essays and Conversations, co-written with Indian author Arundhati Roy. This is a book about a range of subjects, from patriotism to war to resistance to empire. And most centrally, this book is a reflection on a trip Cusack took with Arundhati Roy to Moscow with famed whistleblower of the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg, to meet with NSA whistleblower, Edward Snowden. Before we get to the serious stuff, I just, you know, I know you're Chicago to the core. Just got to ask you, how are you feeling about the Cubbies right now? Let us know. Well, it's very blissful in Wrigleyville right now. Um, we feel pretty good about Arietta and Lackey and Lester in our three-game series in Los Angeles. So we're hoping to get the series back here and uh, get this thing done. But um, it's tense, but fantastic. How long have you been a Cubs fan? I know you're Chicago to the core, but how long has this been your team? Man, my earliest memories of my father were coming to that stadium, and I was playing Sandlot baseball, and then we'd take our money, and I can remember uh, you know, from mowing lawns and I would go down to Howard. I was in Evanston. We'd go to Howard, switch to the B train, get off at uh, Addison, and you know, you'd go to the bleachers, and you'd probably have like four dollars, mostly in change. It had fifty cents on the L there. You could get a bleacher sick ticket for a buck fifty. Then you get a uh, hot dog and a coke, and then you hop the train on the way home. So that happened to me, you know, forty times. <laughs> whenever I had, whenever I had the money to go. <laughs> I mean, that, those were my earliest memories. So uh, I remember the when the bleachers were sort of half empty and um, it was the bleacher bums and all that stuff. So all my earliest childhood memories are at Wrigley Field. Yeah, it feels like this team is, is immune to the whole curse psychology, that there's a toughness and a joy with which they play. I mean, are you getting that vibe as well? Yeah, you know, and we, we have to remember that they're so talented but they're still very young. You got some of these guys who are doing remarkable things, but who are 22, 23, 24 years old. So they're going to have some moments that they got to get through. But yeah, they seem to reflect Joe Madden's thing about never letting the um, pressure exceed the pleasure. And he's got them loose. And you can see guys like Javi Baez and some of the others are really coming into their own. But um, we got a lot of talent and we think this is the year. I, I'm a big fan of the Cubs because I know that Theo Epstein, when he was the GM at Boston, was a good friend of Howard Zinn and reached out to Howard and brought him to games and whatnot. Uh, did you know that about Theo? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, even the uh, last year when we were working on the transcripts with Arundhati, I brought her to the game and introduced her to Theo because Arundhati was very, very close with Howard Zinn. So, yeah, Theo's a very bright guy with a lot of interest. 
so yeah, I know he was close to Howard as well. Yeah, I toured with Howard in the last year of his life, asked him questions on stages and whatnot. And so uh, definitely near and dear to my heart and definitely all love for Theo Epstein for being that kind of guy. And that's a great transition too for what we want to talk about. When did you first come across the work of Arundhati Roy? Well, I'd known about her for a long time. Um, you know, I, I was uh, reading the Haymarket books and uh, had been sort of hip to Howard Zinn, people's history, and people in that orbit, like the great Edward Galliano and and other writers of that of that caliber. And the uh, Berrigan brothers were very, very close to my family, so I had read a lot of radical sort of theology and politics and and history so when she sort of burst on the scene with the god of small things and then started writing these political essays that are you know unparalleled uh the end of imagination walking with the comrades so i had known of her um for a long time and then finally got to meet her and become friends with her and that, that's what I want to talk about next, because I'm sure you've had the experience of reading the work of someone becoming enraptured with their politics, and then you meet them, and it's kind of a dud. But it seems like you met Arundhati, and you guys really clicked. What was it like the first time you spoke? It was fantastic, because you know, if you can imagine the worst climate here with Trump kind of ginning up angry people who have sort of a generalized anger, and he's directing it like a, a great con man or charlatan towards of course the other and you've been stabbed in the back and now he's saying it's rigged you know as, as ugly as the american political scene can get it can get a lot worse in india and she has <laughs> stood up as a female and an intellectual in a place where it's in, can be incredibly dangerous to take the position she's done so she has uh, ice water in her veins you can feel that coming off of her but um you know she's also a, an artist and has great mischief in her and uh she, she can really see things but she was talking about this um an essay she'd written called capitalism a ghost story and anytime she writes anything i read it you know right away and study it because she's a, one of the most brilliant political thinkers i think she would be considered by most sort of a world intellectual mm. and and an amazing human being you know, a couple of weeks ago, and we might even drop the the quote right here. Um, I interviewed Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, who played for the Denver Nuggets and was a like a real athlete activist protesting in the anthem for, during the anthem twenty years before Colin Kaepernick. And I asked him what inspired him to do so, and he said, "Because I love this woman and her writings. You know, Arundhati Roy, the Indian political activist author." And she said, once you see something, you can't unsee it. So to be silent, to say nothing, is just as political an act as speaking out. Either way, you're accountable. Mm. Yeah, I got got a chill up my spine when he said that, too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, she says, you know, we be many, they be few. And and, uh, she says you have to sort of attack empires from all angles with your your spirit, your art, your politics, your solidarity, you know, you have to sort of lay siege to it um, mm. with your laughter, uh, with your joy, with, with everything you got. I should try to pull that quote up. And- oh, we'll pull it up. Here, let me read that quote from Arundhati Roy. She said, our strategy should be not only to confront empire, but to lay siege to it, to deprive it of oxygen, to shame it, to mock it, 
with our art, our music, our literature, our stubbornness, our joy, our brilliance, our sheer relentlessness, and our ability to tell our own stories. Stories that are different from the ones we're being brainwashed to believe. The corporate revolution will collapse if we refuse to buy what they are selling. Their ideas, their version of history, their wars, their weapons, their notion of inevitability. Remember this, we be many, they be few. They need us more than we need them. Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. She's written things that, you know, it's like a, a Bob Dylan song or mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali or something, you know, a Johnny Cash song or something like that, where just thinking back on them and what they said, when you get the most defeated, you feel like that's a North Star and then you start moving towards it. To the book here, um, amazing book. I, I read it, Things That Can and Cannot Be Said, cannot recommend it more. Edward Snowden, so much at the heart of this book. How how are you able to meet with, even come in contact with him and set up this meeting in Moscow? A few years ago, uh, John Perry Barlow and some others, myself, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, Glenn Greenwald, Jenny Jardine, Laura Poitras, some others, uh, started the Freedom of the Press Foundation. And the impetus was when the Congress was blocking the efforts to fund WikiLeaks. So we didn't want to become a Julian super PAC, but we wanted to create a foundation to help raise money for him and for others. So it was kind of like a an organization that we started from that impetus, but then to protect journalists and journalism and the encroachment. Because, you know, the Obama administration has prosecuted more whistleblowers than I think all the presidents combined. Stunning. Not something you hear about this no, campaign season. No, no, no. But we wanted to protect the amendments in their broadest reach. And with the digital era, you know, a lot of those amendments overlap because unreasonable search and seizure, the right to assemble and freedom of speech are, if they're all being monitored, you know, people don't always meet on the streets. And it's not like you're going to be seen going into a, a union rally in a basement somewhere and you're being watched. It's everything you buy, everywhere you look, and everyone you associate with online. So the chilling effect is uh, many of the amendments are being encroached at the same time now by Bluffdale and by this kind of... The only way I can think of it is uh, the people who are doing the surveillance thing are a lot more like Curtis LeMay than Mm. they are uh, about people who are concerned about protecting the constitutional rights of the citizens and, and a free press. So it started in that way. So we were all working together. And then when, you know, of course, Glenn and Laura had the story breaking. So um, we sort of knew about it in advance. And then Ed joined our board. Um, mm. So we were all in contact and, and working together. And I'd written a piece called The Snowden Principle that dropped about four days after um, he made his revelations. And of course, those who serve at the pleasure of the king, who call themselves journalists, if you really look back, you, you, it's amazing how quickly and viciously all the establishment media called for Ed's head. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it was, it was staggering. It was staggering. And can I ask you, just as someone who observes the media and the press, do you think it's the sort of thing where people who work for big news outlets basically get a memo and say, this guy is an enemy? Or do you think it's something instinctual when you reach a rarefied era of media that you view someone like Snowden inherently as an enemy? I think it's a reflective thing from you know, moving up the corporate food chain and, you know, as Chomsky says, you to even get to the position where you're writing op-eds on the, in some of these papers, you know, you, you sort of self-indoctrinate because independent people and people who challenge uh, things on principle are a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have nine companies own all the media outlets in the world. So, I mean, even when I talked to Cenk uh, Ugar, uh, Keith Oberman built MSNBC and to watch uh, MSNBC from when the Bush administration was in office and torture and Abu Ghraib and the wars, all these things, right? They were war crimes. We should be hitting the streets. And then when Obama came in and for whatever political reasons, he thought, well, let me put a legal patina on these overreaches, but I, it's going to be too tough to walk all this stuff back, right? All of a sudden, those weren't outrages. Those weren't crimes. So there was no principle. And they would report on stuff that was, you know, MSNBC was, hey, we're, we're the home team. We're, we're for Obama. So we don't really want to talk about drone strikes. Now, if Richard Nixon uh, or Bill Clinton or George Bush had a, a meeting on Tuesday where they decided they could kill anybody without due process across state lines, what, what do you think our outraged uh, left media would have done? But with the Obama administration, total silence. Mm. So, you know, you, you sort of, you just sort of, you know, you watch these things. And I also knew from the Freedom of Press Foundation that they were prosecuting more whistleblowers than any of the presidents combined. So he, he made a decision he couldn't get outflanked to the right politically. And I just think it's the journalist's job to point out these consistencies. So Jenk got fired from MSNBC for, right. for questioning that. That'll tell you what you need to know. But on the other hand, there's there's more hungry uh, journalists than ever before, and the power has been decentralized in, in a way. I mean, you can go do a podcast, and Jenk has his thing, and mm-hmm. and there's so many wonderful journalists out there doing great work. So, yeah, I guess it's a pretty hopeful time, but I think we have to have some intellectual honesty and call the left to account, just as we do the right. Is what you're saying right now an example of something that things that can and cannot be said? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, look, there's plenty of very, very legitimate critiques you can make of the Democrats from the left. I mean, we've funded all these wars. We haven't stopped them. We haven't brought these things up. We haven't made stands on principles. The three strikes are outlaw was a terrible piece of legislation. Glass-Steagall, we were right there deregulating Wall Street, uh, the Democrats. I don't say we as me. I'm more of an mm-hmm. FDR Democrat when those don't quite exist so much anymore, but also um, the NAFTA agreement was was signed under Clinton. So those are legitimate things to have arguments about and stand with on principle, but there can't be any argument about habeas corpus, due process, all the wars that are going on uh, across. I mean, we've bombed seven countries since 9-11, and ISIS did not come out of nowhere. History doesn't start at 9-11. So we have to be honest about that stuff. I want to ask you about this line in the book 
because a lot of folks are, are very fascinated with what motivated Edward Snowden, what continues to motivate Edward Snowden. And you wrote, my gut tells me Snowden is more radical than he lets on. He has to be so tactical. And as someone who, who, who knows, gotten to know Snowden, first, what, what are your impressions of what motivates him? And do you think, how much has he been radicalized just by the experience of exile? Well, I think, you know, at his core, he shares a lot with Daniel Ellsberg, you know, and Dan was telling us all on the board and when getting time to spend time with Dan is such a, a great man. You know, he said, I've been waiting all my life. I've been waiting 40 years for another Snowden and, uh, hmm. and Manning. And um, you can see what the state has done to Chelsea Manning, who had the temerity to expose a war crime, a solitary confinement. And even when she's uh, so despondent that she commits suicide, well, let's punish that. I mean, so... Make no mistakes. We might have the aesthetics of a very friendly president who's inclusive and all that stuff, but there's some hardcore punitive stuff for anybody who tells the truth against the state. Mm. Exile. Do you think it's radicalized Snowden or changed him? I think it must. But, you know, like um, Dan and Ed were, were very similar. Ed's family's in the Coast Guard. and So he was, a, he was a patriot. And I think he just thought he saw something going wrong. He saw something going on and tried to report it within channels, and then had a sense of like moral outrage. And I think he was very influenced by Dan Ellsberg mm. and thought, you know, he had to do the right thing. So I think he is in an incredibly tough position to try to negotiate amnesty with the very powers that want to destroy him. And uh, I think he's done an incredible job becoming statesmanlike, in a sense, and really trying to stay big with it all. You know, you start the book with this profound quote by Daniel Berrigan, and you mentioned earlier that the Berrigan brothers were were close to your family. And it's worth reading the quote because I think it gives people an idea of this kind of driving sentiment and thesis of the book. Um, this is the quote. Every nation state by supposition tends toward the imperial. That is the point. Through banks, armies, secret police, propaganda, courts, and jails, treaties, treasuries, taxes, laws, and orders, myths of civil obedience, assumptions of civic virtue at the top, still it should be said that of the political left we expect something better. And correctly, we put more trust in those who show a measure of compassion. We agree, conditionally but instinctively, with those who denounce the hideous social arrangements which make war inevitable and human want omnipresent, which foster corporate selfishness, pander to appetites and disorder, waste the earth. So you see this book really being as like a wake-up call for the left. I think so. You know, we, we thought of it, you know, it wasn't planned as a product or anything, but I just started, when I was talking with Roy and we were having these conversations, it was, they were so incredible and so intense that I started sort of recording them. And then um, I had the idea that, hey, let me get Dan out there and add Roy into the mix to get a perspective that goes outside the American-centric point of view. And Berrigan being kind of like the, the spirit that guides the book as well. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, perhaps because I had such great personal interactions with them. And, you know, I remember when they were coming to see my parents or whenever they would come visit us in the summer, you know, I, I could see my parents light up, you know, their eyes would light up. And I, I didn't quite know who they were because I was just a kid, you know. But I could see sort of what would happen and, and the way they would talk about the world. And these were people who decided to take their faith so seriously and take the gospel so seriously that they went underground. They had to go on the land. They had to become 
criminals in the eyes of the state to do what they felt was right. So they were incredibly loving, compassionate, brilliant, visionary people, the whole family. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's this common thread between everything you're talking about, about superficial delineations between left and right when they collude on questions of empire, and that terrific monologue that you uncorked in Bob Roberts, you know, over 20 years ago. In the beginning, our great company provided appliances for the neighborhood. We heated your home, we refrigerated your food, and improved the quality of your life. We prospered, and you loved us. And we grew into a large multinational corporation. In fact, we own this very network. Our chief source of income, however, is the arms industry. Yes, we rely heavily on those fat government contracts to make these useless weapons of mass destruction. And even though we have been indicted and convicted for fraud several times, you don't hear too much about our bad side because we own our own news division. Chances are pretty slim that you'll hear reports of our environmental mishaps or the way we bust those unions. We even have a highly rated Saturday night show that the public buys as entertainment with a leftist slant. Yeah, yeah. I remember riffing on that with Tim Robbins when we were there. We were kind of writing that on the fly. That was fun to do. I mean, that was all reading uh, the radical literature of Chomsky and Zen and all the rest. That was badass. And I think we forget sometimes you got young people watching that stuff and it can just make their minds explode. You know, we become sometimes a little uh, a little inured to that fact that it's it can be really powerful. Yeah, and then we we did another one that on the same token uh, called War Inc., which is sort of becoming a cult movie like mm-hmm. that a little bit, but that's got some very uncomfortable truths. I like killing people as much as the next guy, but I signed up to kill the bad ones. Health clinics, trade unionists, journalists, agricultural co-ops, Catholic liberation theologians, impoverished Colombian coffee farmers. These are the barbarians, the depraved opponents of civilization. We turn Central America into a graveyard. Whoever momentarily interrupts the accumulation of our wealth, we pulverize. I'm just not feeling good about that anymore, sir. Well, I don't know if it was on purpose, but you did War, Inc. and Grace is Gone back to back. Two very yeah. different movies, but that touched on that same point of the human cost of empire. Yeah, yeah. That was just a reaction probably as an artist to thinking, well, you know, what can you do with the Bush administration? And and I thought, well, you know, I, I have to just make some films about this. But you talk about laying siege to empire, and uh, you obviously you speak out as an actor. Colin Kaepernick is in his way laying siege to empire through his anthem protests, speaking out for Black Lives Matter, challenging the very idea of what patriotism means. What is your impression of these anthem protests of Colin Kaepernick? Well, I like disruptive enterprises, right? And I think Colin is in a fine traditions of musician and writers, actors, athletes, you know, who refuse to buy the bullshit. And I think by forcing a conversation about gun violence, what's happening in the inner cities, about war and greed, about terrorism, accurate definitions of what those things are, about countries' flags, patriotism, public opinion, public morality, how easily those things are manipulated. You know, what Dan Ellsberg was talking to us in Moscow, and he was saying, you know, the United States is a a police state is was one more 9-11 away, and we're not in a police state now, he said uh, in the book. But he says, I realize I shouldn't put it that way. White, middle-class, educated people 
people like myself are not living in a police state, but black mm-hmm. poor people are living in a police state. The repression starts with semi-white, the Middle Easterners, anybody who's not allied and goes from there. We don't have a police state, but one more 9-11, and I believe we'll have hundreds of thousands of detentions. Middle Easterner Muslims will be put in detention camps or deported. They already have the data. It's already collected. So if you really think about that and you think about what the flag sort of means, it means different things to different people. And I think it's he's got great courage doing what he's doing. I mean, if we look at um, the statistics, I mean, forget about the issues we're having with police misconduct, but I played Father Michael Flager in Chirac, um, yep. and there's a site called heyjackass.com, which is um, talks about the insanity of, of the shootings. And uh, if I was to ask you how many people have been shot in Chicago this year, what would your answer be? Uh, Just take a guess. A couple thousand? Yeah, like one or two? One or two, yeah. Yeah. To date, 3,484 people have been shot. Wow. So about okay. tw- about over twice of what I was thinking. Yeah, and uh, October to date, 34 homicides. 223 people have been shot. This week, 18 homicides, 111 people shot. So as the world fixates on this delusional, narcissistic clown with no limits, who's a guy who clearly needs medication, not his you know, hands on the nuclear button, as all these things are happening... You know, this is the reality that is happening on the south side of Chicago and in many places around around the country. So if that's the reality, Mr. Kaepernick is doing a courageous and wonderful thing that's in a terrific tradition. The whole, the real meaning of the flag, I think, to anyone with with a heart and with, with vision and a sense of history is that we have the ability to do just what he did. And to start those discussions and to make stands on principles and to do those things. So I'd love to get Colin a copy of this book because, you know, Arundhati and I started it and we thought, well, this could be a book that would be sort of a, a radical intro to some politics that, you know, that hopefully young people would like. I can tell you Dr. Harry Edwards uh, works with the 49ers, and there are a lot of 49ers who are sitting or kneeling or raising a fist. We could send them a box of books. Would you? Absolutely. And anyone else you can think of, you know? Absolutely. No, I've actually, since we emailed, I've been composing a list of athletes I'm going to send the book to. And if they'd like to talk, I'd love to talk with them or or meet them, because Arundhati was... um was so pleased when she heard about Colin Kaepernick. She says, will you please uh, send him my book? Will you please send him my book? Hey, we're, we're laying siege to empire. Absolutely. One of the things I thought we could talk about as well, which was, I thought, the most serious and profound political event in the last 10 years was what I thought was pretty much a glorious and flawless memorial that the Ali family, and you could feel that Ali himself picked everything he wanted said there. I think that funeral itself could have long-lasting repercussions on people's consciousness because the entire world stopped, the media stopped, and here was a serious, serious political man who had uh, the faith of his convictions, who had suffered the very worst that America had to offer and, and survived it. Uh, reminding everybody what real politics are and yeah. what real faith is, is and what real uh, a real world politics are. 
And um, this past weekend, Colin Kaepernick showed up for his first start against Buffalo wearing a Muhammad Ali T-shirt, and he was asked why, and he said, I can't have the great man die in vain. That's right. So I think that that event, uh, and so we, we can all thank Muhammad Ali once again from, you know, from where he is in the rafters, rooting everybody on. And I think that was an incredible moment and should be talked about and, and revered. Yeah, be, being there is something I'll, I'll never forget. Oh, you were at you were actually at it. Yep, I was in Louisville all weekend at the service. I stopped and looked at the television and saw that every station was on it, and I thought, "My God, this man is uh, is doing it from beyond." Yeah, uh, one part of it, I just I, I always want to tell people this is the night before the service. He had a Muslim funeral service that he had planned out in great detail, and fourteen thousand people were there. And the people who he had speak were three unknown Muslim activists, two of whom were women, only one was a man. And in the front row, not allowed to speak, was King Hussein from Jordan, Louis Farrakhan, and Erdogan from Turkey. And uh, Erdogan was so angry that he wasn't allowed to speak, he flew back that night and didn't go to the funeral the next day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so brilliant. <laughs> and and I, the other thing that I thought was so striking about it was, you know, you saw these absolutely genuine people with real world radical politics and by radical i mean human radical in that it was super progressive humanistic inclusive people speaking truth to power and then you'd hear you know valerie jarrett get on stage and it was all about me 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 oh this is obama he is america obama is america you know, it was this canned political speech. And I thought, my God, the difference, mm -hmm. the difference there. It, it was just like, no, 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 no. Just Miss Jarrett, just be respectful and get off stage. You're, you're in way over your head. <laughs> and, and I can tell you that the, uh, the response in the crowd, and it was in a stadium for folks who don't know, and it was free, uh, free tickets for anyone who wanted to be there. The response to the unknowns who were connecting with the radical mood was so much greater in the crowd than the people who did those canned speech or had big names. Yep. Amazing. I really want to thank you for your time, John. I have two last kind of off-topic questions, if you'll humor me, if you don't mind. Sure. Thank you. The first is the best sports movie ever, in my opinion, I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you, is Eight Men Out, and the most searing scene of any sports movie ever, and I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you, is Buck Weaver at the very end talking about Joe Jackson looking tortured and haunted beyond comprehension. It's difficult to look at your face as you're speaking about Joe Jackson. You ever see him play? Yeah, I saw pictures. Pictures. <laughs> I saw him play. Yeah? What do you think? He was the best. Run, hit, throw. He was the best. I just got to ask you, where was your head during that scene? When John Sales is writing it uh, from the Elliot Azenoff book, he has the text there. And uh, Sales said that he learned everything about writing from watching uh, Roberto Clemente play the field. Oh, uh, man. Uh, he says, you know, <laughs> style, power, efficiency, and grace, right? Efficiency meaning just, you know, how do you say it? 
how did you really get to the heart of it and just get to the poetry of it? So it was such a beautiful, wonderful scene. I was just trying to you know, stay present and do it justice. Yeah, m- more than did it justice. Um, and then the, the next question is, again, this is just bizarre, me growing up kind of stuff, but my musical tastes got shaped so much as a young person by the Tapehead soundtrack. Tapeheads, that's great. Swanky modes. And also uh, Fishbone. It was my introduction to Fishbone, who I then saw live a ton of times. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was Before the movie business became sort of so corporate that you had to run through like 75 junior executives every time you made a movie, yeah, you used to be able to kind of put all those really great underground bands in the movies and stuff. And that, was, that was a fun time. And can I tell you, it made me so happy just to hear you go, Tapeheads, because when I was 17... I, I met Tim Rob. I grew up in New York City, and I met Tim Robbins on the street. And I said, "Hey!" And he just smiled, like, "Hey, how you doing?" And I said, "I love tape heads." And he actually stopped and said, "You love tape heads?" And That's I, right. Yeah. He got so happy. Maybe we should do this again because I was out so late last night with the Cubs. I'm not sure I sounded particularly coherent today, but maybe we can do another one. And uh, I'd, I'd love to. Anytime you want to be on the show, we will do this show. Anytime you want to do anything, consider us a resource. All right, my man. Be well. All right, see you soon. Bye-bye. That was John Cusack, and for folks who want more information about his book, Things That Can and Cannot Be Said, or if you want more information about the Freedom of Press Foundation, there will be links to that in the description of this podcast. And now I got some choice words about a woke tailgate, as it was called, in Buffalo. Look, it has not been uncommon in the fall of 2016 to have reality overpower our most radical fictions. That was certainly true on Sunday, October 16th. It was the 48th anniversary of that indelible moment in 1968 when John Carlos and Tommy Smith put their heads down and fists up on the Olympic medal stand as the anthem played. Their friend, Australian silver medalist Peter Norman, standing in solidarity with their protest. 48 years later to the day in Buffalo, another anthem protester for human rights, Colin Kaepernick, made his first start of the 2016 season as his 49ers took on the Bills. He arrived at the game with his Afro picked out wearing a Muhammad Ali t-shirt. Outside the stadium, in one of the most notorious tailgating spaces in the NFL, they were selling t-shirts with Kaepernick with a rifle scope trained on his body and the phrase, wanted, notorious disgrace to America. Fans were caught on camera running and tackling effigies of Colin Kaepernick, the effigies topped off with giant fake afros. On social media, 
There was tape of one fan yelling before contact, tackle the Muslim. Inside the stadium, the Bills were not much more welcoming. They're coached by Rex Ryan, a Trump supporter who has spoken at rallies next to the wannabe despot and supports him because he, quote, has the courage to say what is on his mind, end quote. Another Trump supporter on the Bills sideline is Richie Incognito, who is suspended from the league for bullying, a swirl of sexual assault accusations, and calling teammate Jonathan Martin the N-word, although he insisted it was all in good fun. Then there is Bills star running back LaShawn McCoy, who mocked Kaepernick by inviting the local police to the game. One would be tempted to just leave it all at that and write off the Buffalo Bills franchise and their fans as a sewer of reactionary refuse. But not all fans were playing this game. A group calling themselves Just Resisting, a collective of organizers and artists of black people and other people of color, and Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, a chapter in Buffalo of the national organization of white folks organizing other white people for racial justice, took to the stadium to fight back with what they called a woke tailgate. They were attempting to not only show solidarity with Colin Kaepernick, but also raise the very issues that were the catalyst for his protests, police violence and the devaluing of black lives. They gathered three hours before kickoff in lot 4A behind the Louis hot dog. And at noon, they rallied, drummed and chanted by gate five with signs that read Bill's fans for black lives. Now, if you've ever tried to bring a protest to any football tailgate, and I have, then you know that these people are brave. The threat of violence is ever-present, always with a tinge of alcohol in the air, more than a tinge. And not to mention urine and feces and all kinds of lovely smells, usually backed up by somebody raising their fists, and not in a protest way, but in I'll punch you in the mouth kind of way. But these folks were ready. Over 75 people who were part of the woke tailgate took part in a de-escalation training to prevent being brutalized by the aggro drunks of Bill's nation. When I heard about this, it was difficult to not think about the early civil rights activists who practiced being on the receiving end of torrents of abuse in church basements before sitting in at whites-only lunch counters. Sure enough, the abuse came, but not unlike the Bill's coach or Trump himself, it was more tough guy posturing than any actual heart to challenge the people who had arrived unified and ready to make a stand. At 1 p.m. as the anthem played, Colin Kaepernick took a knee with two teammates, Eli Harold and Eric Reed. Fitting for this anniversary of 1968, five other teammates, Keith Reeser, Richard Robinson, Jaquiski Tart, Antoine Bethea, and Mike Davis all raised their fists. As Kaepernick kneeled, Buffalo fans chanted USA, less as a point of patriotic pride than as a threat. A police officer consciously photobombed Kaepernick's protest, standing a few feet behind him with a salute. A friend of mine's parents who were at the game said to me, and this is a quote, it was scary. It was the closest I will ever come to being at a Trump rally. A beer bottle was thrown at Kaepernick, a potentially lethal act, but it did not connect. But Kaepernick and the other 49ers were not alone. As the anthem played, the 100 people with just resisting and surge took a knee. The fact that so many white anti-racists took a knee in support of black activists and black lives was also the perfect way to remember not only John Carlos and Tommy Smith, 
but also Peter Norman and the idea that white people have a responsibility to support anti-racist struggle. As for the game, the slumping 49ers lost to the surging Buffalo Bills 45-14. to But the final score was about as important as John Carlos winning bronze instead of silver in 1968. This was bigger than sports, and Kaepernick, as well as the anti-racists of Buffalo, one of the poorest and most segregated cities in the United States, met the challenge. After the game, Kaepernick was asked about the virulent fan reaction, and he said, I don't understand what's un-American about fighting for liberty and justice for everybody. That's a question a great many people in Buffalo and around the country should have to try to ask themselves. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. This week, it goes to two people. First and foremost, to Nigel Hayes, the all-Big Ten player from Wisconsin, who has been outspoken about the NCAA's stance on not paying college athletes. Saturday morning with ESPN's College Game Day in town in Madison, he used the show's presence to make a statement, holding up a sign that said, Broke college athlete, anything helps. Now, anybody who is familiar with Nigel Hayes' social media feed or his politics would not have been surprised to see the all-Big Ten player take this step. Previously, he had tweeted, The Big Ten made nearly $450 million last year. My scholarship is about $160,000 if only there was enough money to pay us. Now, he was blasted for all of this stuff predictably. But again, if you know who Nigel Hayes is, this wouldn't have surprised you. In an interview with the ESPN site The Undefeated, he said that his favorite book was the autobiography of Malcolm X and said, After I read that and learned that Malcolm had that eureka kind of a wake-up call in prison, I had the same awakening to the world, ideas, things that are going on. He also has sent these two tweets in recent weeks. He wrote, Blacks riot when people are murdered without consequences. Whites riot when sports teams win championships. He also said in the undefeated interview, I 100% agree with Colin Kaepernick. The words liberty and justice for all, land of the free, etc. Black people don't have that luxury. We don't live in the world where justice is served. You have white cops who kill people who are not held accountable for it. We're not enjoying the same rights and freedoms that were promised in all these great documents like the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. So it just makes sense for Kaepernick to sit. If you're mad he's sitting for injustice, you're a racist, end quote. Nigel Hayes, not playing, wins the Just Stand Up Award this week. And I want to repeat, he's doing this as a college athlete with legitimate NBA aspirations. And that makes it all the more brave because his position in the sports world is all the more precarious. I just want Nigel Hayes to know that he is welcome to come on the Edge of Sports podcast anytime he likes. The other Just Stand Up Award this week, very briefly, it goes to Adrian Gonzalez, star slugger for the Los Angeles Dodgers, who refused to stay with his team in Chicago during the playoffs because the team was staying at a Trump hotel. 
This should not surprise anybody who knows Adrian Gonzalez, who who was born in the United States and has always stood strongly for immigrant rights, including standing up six years ago against Arizona's SB 1070 Papers Please Law. That's who Adrian Gonzalez was. That's who Adrian Gonzalez is. And he is not staying at a Trump hotel. A lot of folks are praising Adrian Gonzalez for this. But I think the right question should be, why are the Los Angeles Dodgers staying at a Trump hotel And why is he the only one refusing to put his head on those virulent pillows and no doubt moth-bitten crab-infested sheets? And now it's the time on the show when we take calls, 401-426-3343. You can always call anytime and give us feedback on the show. We'll always play some calls on the air. Last week, the question I asked you was, what is locker room talk to you? And have you ever been confronted with the experience of hearing somebody speak like Donald Trump, in other words, bragging about sexual assault in the locker room, and how did you respond? We got a call that I know my producer, Dan Bloom, really wants me to hear, and I have not heard it yet. Let's give it a listen. Hey, what's up, Dave? My name is Matt calling from Queens, New York. I had an incident when I was in high school. I got in an argument with a gym teacher about what consent really means. What was awesome about it was that I had other students join in with me and really tell this guy that, yo, you're being a scumbag. and You have to understand that you need consent from a woman. And unfortunately, this was a gym teacher who ended up getting arrested for sexual assault. But I was really proud of the fact that, you know, I stood up and other guys stood up in a locker room full of only males. And that's why it's laughable to hear these uh, excuses that are made for the quote unquote locker room talk that excuses sexual assault. It's not okay. And people can be taught to understand that consent is the most important thing when it comes to sexual relations and you know i'm just glad that you're using your platform to speak out about it and that other athletes and people in entertainment and media are speaking out about these important things keep it up Dave. you're doing a great job with your podcast and keep it going bro wow uh thank you so much matt from queens you know i'm from new york city big up queens listen Matt, a couple of responses to your call. Remember, this is the first time I've heard the call. Just a couple of things that are going through my mind. First and foremost, thank you for sharing that story. I really do believe that courage is contagious. And so people hear your words. Hopefully, they'll find the courage to do similar things in their locker room. Second of all, thank you for not only standing up to this particular teacher, but telling the story to its conclusion about this teacher being eventually arrested for sexual assault, because that is one of my arguments and the arguments of a lot of folks, not just about Trump, but about this kind of talk in general. Uh, it's never benign and it's never just talk. And usually when people brag about it in a locker room, what they're looking for is reinforcement. They're looking for people who will be an amen chorus to their acts that on some level in their mind, they know is wrong. And that's why standing up is so important. I mean, this Trump campaign has just been an absolute fiasco. It's been a fiasco for democracy. It's been a fiasco for the millions of people who've had to suffer through sexual assault and then have to hear this clown speak about it every day and insult the people who are accusing him. But if one good thing comes out of this, one good thing, it's that reports of sexual assault have been up dramatically since Trump has started these tirades. And hopefully, 
This will somehow forge some sort of consensus in this country that consent is not just something we talk about on the margins or on college campuses or in women's studies classes, but it becomes a guiding principle to how we relate to one another in this society. Again, the call line is 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. We always want to hear your feedback about the show. And the question for this week is twofold. And it has to do with our two Just Stand Up Award people. First of all, what do you think about Nigel Hayes calling for college athletes to be paid? Would love to know your thoughts about that. 401-426-3343. And would love to know what you think about Adrian Gonzalez not staying at a Trump-owned hotel. What do you think about that? A player saying, no, I am not going to do this. Is he breaking down team unity or is he standing for a greater principle? Let us know what you think. 401-426-3343. 401-426-EDGE. Thank you, John Cusack. Thank you for your book, Things That Can and Cannot Be Said. Uh, If people want more information about the book or to purchase the book, there will be links in the description of this podcast. You can always contact me, Dave Zirin, at Edge of Sports on Twitter or at edgeofsports at slate.com. And remember, you can always call the Edge of Sports hotline at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Also, I'm so proud of the shows we've done in recent weeks. The interviews with DeAndre Levy, Walter Beach, Dr. John Carlos. The interview we're going to do next week with Jessica Luther, the author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, a searing look at college sports and sexual assault. Please listen to back episodes of the show at www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Thank you to my producer, Dan Bloom. Thank you to production associate, David Tigaboo. For everybody out there in Edge of Sports land, we are out of here. Peace. Peace.